Hello and welcome to another podcast edition of Taiwan Talk, ICRT's weekly interview segment, bringing you conversations from and about Taiwan. Uh, today, once again, we are continuing our once-a-month series, taking a look at moments in Taiwan's history with Taipei Times features writer Han Cheng uh, and his weekly column, Taiwan in Time. So uh, we're going to welcome back onto the show Han Cheng. Welcome back. Thanks for having me here again. And so just to remind our listeners, uh, each week you have a column that comes out on Sunday, takes a look at some moment in Taiwan's history that corresponds to the same calendar date as the following week. Could be uh, 10 years ago, could be 100 years ago, could be 400 years ago, uh, but just some moment that happened on that calendar date. You bring it out of the archives, you bring it onto the pages of the newspaper, uh, and uh, discuss it a little bit. Look at what it means uh, in the context of Taiwan's very complicated, very nuanced history. And we are stealing your content and using it to make a podcast. So that's what we're going to be doing here today. Uh, today, uh, it, we're going to be looking at the stories from October. Uh, we've got four to do, but the last one was a double feature. So we're going to be going into uh, a little bit more depth for that story. But before we get to uh, any of the stories, actually, we uh, are once again going to bring a musical tie-in into the show. And there's a very strong musical tie-in this month uh, because actually uh, quite a famous and historical uh, singer passed away earlier this very month. Yeah, so um, this week we'll be listening to music from Guo Jingfa. Um, he unfortunately passed away. Uh, he collapsed on stage and passed away on October 8th. Mm. So we'll Performing be, yeah, up to performing. the last moment. Yeah, yeah, he was. Remarkably. Mm-hmm. So we'll be looking at some of his songs. Uh, this one will be his first hit was Shobazang, which means, um, I guess, hot rice dumpling. Mm, in and, Taiwanese, yep. Um, yeah. So that was his first hit. And that's, uh, there's an interesting story behind this hit um, because um, it was originally written in uh, 1949. Mm-hmm. And that was like post-World War II. It was singing about the bad economic conditions and unemployment and... It was actually banned by the government because it was too negative and mm. painted like a bad picture of society. So 10 years later, in 1959, Guo like slightly changed the lyrics to be more, a little bit more positive and released mm. it. And that became his biggest hit. And it was actually the song he was singing when he collapsed on stage earlier this month. Oh, wow. So kind of bookended his mm-hmm. career in a way. Yeah, yeah. And we should also point out, I mean, he started his career exceptionally young. Yeah, yeah. He showed his talent at the young age of like 15 and released his first album at 17. And had more than 100 throughout his lifetime. So mm. he spent his entire life singing. Just you know, for my own personal reaction when I hear this music, I mean, it it's just sound. It has this very characteristically Taiwanese, very iconic sound. Am I? Am I? I don't know a ton, as uh, you know. That's the whole point of doing this is to help my education in Taiwanese music. But uh, am I right to feel that way? Is is it very like characteristic of this mid-century Taiwanese sound? Yeah, it is. Like uh, with the instrumentation, like the Japanese influence instrumentation, and the really deep voice and mm-hmm. uh, the. Um, yeah, I think it's like what you would hear at, on the street or at like gatherings or like at uh, or taxi drivers. That's mm. where you would kind of hear a lot of that music. All right. So in honor of Gua Jingfa, uh, this is him singing Xiao Rou Zhong to take us into the very first story. Gua 
All right, so uh, off to our first story now, and this is going to be your first article for the month of October, uh, released on October 2nd, A Leftist Under Three Regimes. Uh, and you're actually focusing on the life of one individual, one Xie uh, Xie Hong. Uh, and the date tie-in is the founding of one of the, uh, I guess she was responsible for a couple of associations, but this is uh, one association that she founded in early October of 1945. Uh, but let's actually start even earlier in her career, because she had a very expansive career, and kind of the take-home point from all of this is she was keeping it too real, she was too much of a rebel for three different regimes, uh, and let's start with the first one. She was born under colonial Japanese rule uh, in the early 20th century. Yeah, so uh, Shia was born in uh, 1901. To uh, That was uh, the sixth year of Japanese rule to like a poor family. And she had a pretty tough life growing up. She was... Uh, Adopted into like a family to be their son's future wife, and she was abused, and she ran away, and um, kind of married this dude who kind of gave her the opportunity to go to Japan and China, and it was interesting. Like she just happened to be in those countries at the time where there were these revolutions, like the rice riots in Japan, the Taisho democracy, and then the May Fourth movement where people were protesting against the government. So that kind of started her rebellious spirit Mm. and fighting for people's rights. Mm. So she kind of saw all this stuff going on, Mm. perhaps got radicalized. Yeah, yeah. So in in Taiwan, she already became involved with like the Taiwanese Cultural Association, which Mm. was aimed to kind of promote like Taiwanese nationalism as like a passive resistance against Japanese rule. And then later she traveled to China to study mm. and then she participated in the May 30th movement which was an anti-labor and anti-imperialist protest so she got she became more involved in these kind of like activist like political activists and social activists activities mm. and she's coming at all of this from the lefty end of the political spectrum yeah 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 because finally her actions um caught the attention of the Chinese Communist Party and she joined the party and she studied in Russia. So she was studied, which was the Soviet Union back then. Um, so that's when she kind of got recruited by like Communist International, which had members in each class. Mm. And they were supposed to train these international students so they could go back to their home country to like further their cause. So she's like she's like the real deal. She's getting the communism from the source, from the mother Russia. Yeah, straight from the birthplace of uh, Mm -hmm. all of this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So then um, she went back to Shanghai and then she kept on like doing her communist activities. Mm. And then um, while... So this would be, we're coming up on regime number one Mm -hmm. that was not a big fan of her. Yeah. She tried to start this uh, Taiwanese Communist Party from Shanghai because Mm. Taiwan was under Japanese rule. So she tried to do it by proxy. Mm-hmm. And then uh, and the party also, like, in addition to communism, it also championed, like, an independent Taiwan that was, like, and denounced colonial rule. And this made the Japanese unhappy. So there was a certain amount of nationalism mixed up in the yeah. communism. Yeah, yeah, because she had been involved with the Taiwanese Cultural Association prior. Mm-hmm. So... 
Yeah, so she was deported by、um, the Japanese police who had a presence in Shanghai. Okay, and so then she went back to Taiwan and continued to start some trouble. Yeah, she did. She、uh, actually started a bunch of other Taiwanese、uh, communist parties, which also like. Kept calling for Taiwanese independence and、mm-hmm. like women's rights, and、uh, she even took control of the Taiwanese Peasants Union and the Taiwan Cultural Association and、um, the Taiwan's People's Party. And、mm. I don't know if it's only because of her, but they these organizations all started、um, leaning towards the left and eventually even becoming like openly leftist.、Mm. And then this was.、Uh, And then the Japanese decided to do like a mass raid on Taiwanese communists. So、mm. she was arrested and spent thirteen sentenced to thirteen years in jail.、Mm. So that was her first class against the first regime. All right. So Japan first regime、uh, A doesn't like this troublemaker. B doesn't like this nationalist kind of figure.、Mm-hmm. They lock her away,、uh, but then she gets out in the late thirties, just、yeah. in time for World War Two.、Mm-hmm. So she gets out and. Japan's like deep in World War Two. They're doing their.、Uh, this is like expansionist period where they just was like、uh, Japanization of all the Taiwanese people. So、mm. all of these organizations were banned. So、mm-hmm. there wasn't much she could do during that time.、Mm-hmm. Right, but by the end of the war,、uh, things calm down a little bit, and she starts、uh, the Taiwan's People's Association, which is kind of where we started all this.、Mm-hmm. Uh, October of 1945. Yeah, so she tries to resume her political activities. So she started that one, which was more like a Taiwanese people's,、uh, like an association for like Taiwanese, like local Taiwanese people,、mm. and、uh, and then other started try to start a bunch of other you know like peasant and like leftist organizations, and those were quickly disbanded、mm. by the government. Right, so she runs into regime number two, which would be、uh, the ROC forces, which、uh, led by the KMT, which had just come to Taiwan. Yeah, yeah, and she called for like political autonomy and called for popular elections and said that Taiwan must be ruled by Taiwanese. And obviously, the not, regime didn't like that. Yeah, but then the the bigger clash would come later when the two two eight incident. Broke out. She actually organized like a armed resistance against、um, the KMT forces that were out to kind of suppress the rebellion that started.、Mm, And, so she, she she was like the head in Taichung of that yeah, resistance. Yeah, yeah, she was the head in Taichung. So she led this like. Yeah, armed resistance against the KMT forces. So, 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 so far, she is a feminist.、Uh, she is、uh, a communist, apparently, or at least a leftist.、Mm-hmm. She's gone to Russia to get a formal education and all this, and now she's organizing militias. Basically, yeah, she yeah. covers a lot of bases. This she lady, she does. She does. Not bad. Not、mm-hmm. bad. But it,、uh, yeah. of course, she's up against an awful lot, and she ends up needing to flee Taiwan. Yeah. So, of course. Yeah, the forces get overwhelmed, and、um, so she fled to China, and uh, soon um, China would fall to the communists, which would seemingly like fit her lefty, agenda. Lefty, lefty、yeah. under a leftist regime. Right. Done. Done. She's finally found her regime.、Mm-hmm. But then, during the anti-rightist movement in 1957, like because she never stopped,、uh, there were a lot of factors, but one of them was she never stopped championing for like. 
Taiwanese autonomy mm. and uh, that kind of. It's kind of the through line for mm, all of these. Yeah, gets her in trouble in each case. Yeah, right. So she was branded as a rightist, mm. and then in that, the 60s, or yeah. no, even earlier than the 60s, in the, in the 50s, in 57, mm. and then that led to her being purged repeatedly during the Cultural Revolution. Mm. Yeah, and the story begins with a scene where uh, two Red Guards like push her head down and force her to bow her head. Yeah, and then she just died in 1970, and mm. the government didn't really clear her name until 1986. Right, and so that's and kind of the remarkable irony of all this, is this is the person who basically was recruited by the Communist Party, was sent to Russia, but she was not communist enough for these Red Guards. Yeah, and uh, before she died, she wrote in her will. She, like, the last thing she wrote was... I'm not a rightist. I support the Communist Party. Mm. So. so a very storied, interesting career, Miss Xie Xue Hong. Uh, and I, I guess the interesting thing for me that I kind of took away from this story is when I think of the colonial period, uh, the Japanese colonial period in Taiwan, I maybe think of a rebellion here or there. I maybe think of uh, people working with the regime, that kind of like uneasy relationship. I wouldn't necessarily think of, you know, the big... Uh, intellectual currents of that uh, era running through Taiwan as well. But she, clearly, like, she is a part of that story of leftist thinking uh, that was going on at that time. And she was, you know, bringing that to Taiwan and making that a part of that story in that era. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, there was a lot of, um, like, cultural activities. Like, the, by that time, um, um, armed resistance had pretty much stopped, like, mm -hmm. at least with the Han Chinese people. So... Mm -hmm. Um, so there was a lot of uh, cultural resistance going on. Like a lot of radical intellectual yeah. type stuff. Yeah, like national, Taiwanese mm -hmm. national pride. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and yeah, and that kind of radical leftist stuff kind of mm. factored into it too. Mm. All right. So that was the, the storied career of Miss Xie Xue Hong. Uh, we are going to now listen to our second song for the program. Once again, uh, this is from... Uh, what are we listening to here? So this is one of his biggest hits, uh, So it's like the guitar in Hot Springs Country. Mm. And it's just a song about heartbreak, and it was released in 1964. All right, so uh, we're going to let that take us to our second story for the month of October. And that takes us to the second story of your series in October. This one uh, published on October 9th, Taiwan's Great Leap Forward. Uh, not a term we generally associate with Taiwan, so uh, interesting choice there. But what we're referring to uh, is the Taiwan Exhibition of 1935, which kicked off on October 10th, uh, all the way back there, and was sort of aimed at 
highlighting 40 years of Japanese colonial rule in Taiwan and all that had been accomplished at that time, a great leap forward, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so great leap forward was actually their tagline for the entire exhibition. Mm. Um, they wanted to show to the world um, what they've been able to accomplish in Taiwan because they saw Taiwan kind of as like a backwater Mm -hmm. province. So uh, they beat Mao to the punch with that kind of concept. Actually, they did, yeah. All right. Yeah, Yeah, so um, in addition to showing off all this stuff, they invited like uh, foreign officials from all over the world and it was kind of like a display of might because that's 1935 was just before... Japan was about to invade China. Mm-hmm. And um, part of it was they planned on using Taiwan as a springboard to invade the rest of like Southeast Asia because they mm-hmm. had this kind of southward policy. Mm-hmm. Um, Different from the southbound policy that we're more familiar with today. Yeah, yeah. So with that and um, and – this is evident in the show where they even had like an entire section devoted to Southeast Asia, talking about the people there and the culture there, as if that was already like part of the Japanese Empire. Mm. And yeah, so it was a military display, it was like a preparation, and it was also just putting sort of these nationalistic ideas out there. Yeah, yeah. So it was a kind of it was kind of like a sign of things to come because mm. Japan would get like really military, militarily aggressive like mm. in just the next couple of years. And from the perspective of Taiwan, this is significant uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one of them being that this is like literally one of the biggest exhibitions to ever happen in Taiwan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, almost, and it was in Taipei, but then it had kind of like little subsidiary things in other cities as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it had like three, I think three major exhibition halls in Taipei, and then it had like uh, a bunch of stuff like all over Taiwan. But the main thing was uh, was to have people visit the main exhibition in Taipei, and then these people would be, be taken. Um, a lot of officials were taken on a tour around the island, but. Mm-hmm. Um, it was actually less ab- less about like seeing pretty spots and more about like looking at like factories, looking mm-hmm. at like kind of uh, things that the Japanese the imperial might yeah, the imperial might yeah that's a good way to put it. So. And so then in 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 Taipei, what would have been on display? Um, pretty much everything, like from agricultural products to military to like transportation to culture. Um, products and there was even uh it was not just about taiwan they also had like booths on like uh, different cities in japan and Mm. uh, like i said earlier the southeast asian um section and there were a lot of shows a lot of of entertainment a lot of like interesting gadgets that um was like pretty much had everything and it was so big that to you know kind of facilitate it the japanese I actually kind of had to touch up other parts of uh, Taiwan society from infrastructure even to health. Yeah, yeah. Uh, One thing was interesting was there was a lot of like uh, meningitis and a lot of other diseases going on. That'll ruin any fair. Yeah, and there was like a big outbreak like earlier that year. Mm -hmm. And uh, so to – and the Japanese actually like ramped up this uh, eradication and vaccination program just – so the country would be like the colony would be disease free when the people would visit the place, and they also um, 
improve like uh, historical sites to promote Taiwanese tourism and transportation and a whole lot of that stuff. And a lot of it was to get people to Taipei, but a lot of that stuff actually like kind of stayed on. And it's it's kind of interesting. So in your article, I mean, you you point out that this is probably one of the top three biggest. Uh, exhibitions to ever occur in Taiwan, you know, even up until into the modern era. Um, but it's kind of interesting in hearing how you frame it and hearing how they were thinking of it at the time as, you know, we'll put this stuff on display, but we'll also use this as a way to promote development in Taiwan. It sounds like creepily similar to the way that events are kind of promoted today in Taipei. Not much has changed. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. Uh, so that gives a sense of what you would have seen if you were at the Taiwan exhibition of 1935. But then the kicker for all this is uh, one extremely important historical figure from uh, mainland China was yeah. actually in attendance at the event. Right. So this is interesting because, uh, like I said earlier, the Japanese invited all these officials from around the world. And so the Chinese representative was Chen Yi. So if you don't know... Who he is, he's the governor of Taiwan when the 228 incident broke out. Mm. and um, Responsible for the policies yep. that led to 228 mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. Um, but, but at the time, in 1935, he was the governor of Fujian. Yeah, so he was the governor of Fujian. And he noticed, like, uh, despite the – Fujian was pretty poor back then. So he looked at Taiwan, which was much smaller but uh, had, like, a – much higher production level. So he uh, he was already interested in Taiwan before mm. this trip, and he actually sent like a delegation to um, observe how the Japanese were running the colony. Mm. And then he personally visited this fair to you know see what the Japanese were doing right, mm. and that made him like one of the very few like top Chinese officials like that had any Taiwanese Taiwan experience mm. after the nationalist takeover. So mm-hmm. um, that might have led to uh, Chiang Kai-shek's decision to appoint him as the governor of Taiwan. So a very consequential visit right there. Mm-hmm. So looking uh, at this moment in history, uh, what, what what is most striking to you about uh, you know this, see, seeing this type of fair happen in 1935 and seeing uh, a Taiwan that's already much more prosperous than the rest of China after you know only 40 years it, you know before it would have been considered a, back, a backwater mm-hmm. of China and now it's way ahead of them after only 40 years. Right. I don't know. That kind of just shows like different sides of Japanese rule because mm. we talk a lot about how the people suffered and um, anti-Japanese resistance, but it also shows like the accomplishments and the uh, infrastructure and all the stuff that the Japanese built. And whether it was for the Taiwanese people or not, um, it was still they still really managed to improve Taiwan mm. in a lot of ways. I think it also kind of puts on display this very strange moment in history where uh, Imperial Japan hasn't quite gone off on the warpath yet. It's still sort of trying to maintain good relations with China. Very kind of uh, ironic passage where uh, as Chen Yi was going around, they would take down any references to 40 years of colonial rule. You know, you wouldn't want to remind him that this is 
a place that we kind of took from you. Um, and so it's it's just this very strange cultural moment where colonial Taiwan is kind of at its peak under Japanese rule. It's already been developed a lot, but they're just, you know, like right on the edge of this huge historical storm that's kind of blow it all apart. Yeah, yeah. That part is really eerie to me because it's mm. like, although it had like ulterior motives, like this was seen as like a huge celebration, you know, like they were... Uh, they even extended goodwill towards China by like saving Chen Yi face, and mm-hmm. it was just this really supposedly really happy moment. But if you know like what would happen like, just a couple of years later, it's actually like yeah, kind of like unnerving. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Anything could happen in the next two years. Mm -hmm. Lesson of history. Yep. All right, so we're going to move on to our next story. And to take us there, we have yet another song from Mr. Gua Jinfa. Uh, Gua Jinfa is going to sing what to take us to the third story for today? This one is called Wei Xiaomi, which just means why. Mm. And it's another sad love song. Another sad love song to take us to the third story for today uh, with the dulcet tones of Gua Jinfa. Coming up on the third story for today, on the third story in your column in October, this one uh, published on October 16th, Anti-Colonial Messages from the Sky. And so we're going to be talking about somebody with quite a lot of aviation prowess all the way back in the 1920s when that really meant something. I mean, that's just a flying death box that you're in, more or less. Uh, and we're going to be talking about the exploits of Xia Wenda who was basically Taiwan's first-ever aviator, first-ever pilot. And on October 17th, 1920, he made his first demonstration in Taiwan. Yeah, he did. So uh, October 17th, he uh, after receiving his like commercial pilot license and uh, after graduating from aviation school in Japan, he returned to Taiwan. And that day was his first um, demonstration in his hometown of Taichung. He would do uh, so. He would do a couple more throughout the colony, and then um, that made him a big hit with the Taiwanese because it was a source of Taiwanese pride. And um, were not a lot of pilots at all uh, in those days. Yeah, there weren't. He was the first one. Mm. So um, yeah, and then so just to go back to the beginning of his story, mm-hmm. uh, he when he was a young guy, basically his inspiration for all this was uh, an American pilot who came to town. Yeah. It was uh, Art Smith. So this guy's pretty legendary. He, not sure how well known he is in the states, but he came to Asia. He took tour, uh, he came to Asia and made two tours of uh, Japan and its colonies. So it was, mm. he visited Japan, Korea, and Taiwan, and he did like aerial demonstrations. And he did one in Taichung where uh, Xie attended, and that inspired him to be a pilot. Mm. And this Art Smith guy is interesting because uh, the first Korean. Both male and female pilots also cite him as um, their inspiration to 
So really, uh, fly. Hmm, really an influential figure there. Uh, so at the time, the only way to learn how to fly was to go to Japan, though.、Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he went to Japan and then went to aviation academy and then graduated with honors and、mm. became the first Taiwanese pilot ever. Hmm. Okay, so he's a source of pride for you know aviation school in Japan. He is a source of pride、uh, for everybody in Taiwan. I mean, he goes back to Taiwan and he just does a series of basically aerial acrobatic shows around the island.、Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That's. But then, what he's remembered for now,、uh, more than anything, is、uh, something that I think Japan was not so proud of. Yeah, yeah. So the J- Japan was pretty proud of him because、uh, after he also won like a, a couple of aviation competitions in Japan, and so he was received by the governor general. He was kind of like an example of like you know like a Taiwanese、uh, accomplishment, and、um, but. Then, just three years later, in early well, it'll be about two years later, in early 1923, he actually flew over Japan, and that was when、uh, the Taiwanese Cultural Association and、uh, all these activists were in Japan trying to petition for like a Taiwanese representative assembly. So, in support of this, she dropped about twenty thousand leaflets、mm. over Tokyo. Oh, so he flew straight to the heart of the empire. And、uh, just drop these leaflets denouncing Japanese rule, saying that、um, you know Taiwanese have been long suffering under tyrannical rule.、Um, the totalitarianism of the colonial government is a disgrace to Japan, and like words like that.、Mm. Yeah, right over Tokyo. Right over Tokyo. So he 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 took. He said, "Thanks for teaching me how to fly." Now here's what I'm going to do with it. Pretty much, yeah. And the last time he was, was over Tokyo was when he won a competition flying between Tokyo and Osaka,、mm. like three years ago. <laughs> <laughs>、uh, returning with a bang, returning with a bang, obviously. Yep.、Uh, and so then, what happens to the guy? Well, obviously he has to flee. So lucky for him, he's got a plane. Yeah. So he has a plane. He flies to、uh, China, and then he actually. Serves in the Republic of China Air Force、mm. for a while, and he participates in some pretty major battles, and he gets severely injured、mm. to the point where he can't fly anymore.、Mm-hmm. So he、um, becomes a businessman, but he continues his like anti-Japanese activities in Guangzhou, and then finally the nationalists lose this Chinese Civil War, so he gets to return to Taiwan. Mm. And he 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 comes back here with those retreating forces, basically.、Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he actually served on the Taiwan Provincial Consultative Council and ran a machinery factory for about twenty years, and then the rest of his life is largely unknown. He just decided to live it quietly、mm. and、uh, laying low. Yeah, died at his quietly at his home in nineteen eighty three. Uh, so、uh, a, a very interesting figure there,、uh, and kind of interestingly, one of the pictures that you show in your article is of an exhibition in 2007 that kind of it was like a little diorama reenacting、uh, his famous flight over Tokyo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I found that picture、um, in our archives, and、uh, yeah, it was like a little plane. It said like、uh, the name of the plane, and it had yeah, just dropping all these leaf 
dropping all these leaflets that um I'm sure that they didn't change too many minds in Tokyo but uh still a very daring uh thing to do so I guess but from that exhibition I guess that we can tell that this is uh an an event that's still remembered to some extent Yeah I I think it is it's it's not as remembered as it probably should be mm. but judging from like there are still like exhibitions about it I think and him being the first pilot in Taiwan it, it is worth remembering and just the boldness of his move and how he he didn't go for Taipei he went straight for Tokyo <laughs> I think that's <laughs> that's already worth uh mm. like commemorating <laughs> Right, and uh, we we probably uh, need to let this theme go because we bring it up at least once every episode. But uh, and we already have on this episode. But just this once again gets at that contradiction of Japanese colonial rule. Because on the one hand, here's a guy that was taught how to fly uh, by the colonizers, uh, but then on the other hand, he's uh, fiercely nationalist. He opposes the domination of a of a foreign power, and he wants to see you know the the freedom of his own country. And so, once again, you have that tension there between uh, the benefits of uh, development under Japanese rule and uh, the resentment that comes from the loss of freedom. Yeah, and that's kind of a theme through like um, a lot of the um, topics I wrote about during Japanese rule is mm. just kind of the conflict and how they all received education and they were able to benefit from all these things, but. Yeah, they were still being ruled by a foreign power, and they mm. were still, you know, second-class citizens until Japan started actively trying to turn them into like Japanese citizens. But that's a whole other story. Mm. All right, story for another day, but we'll have many other days, of course, so we can get to it then. Moving on, and we have one last song to introduce to our listeners. This one, interestingly enough, comes uh, fairly recently. I believe it was penned by Mr. Guajin Fa in just 2010, and it's on a theme that uh, I think that we can all relate to, even perhaps more uh, than Meat Dumplings. Yeah. So in 2010, uh, Guajin Fa wrote the song Boho Deku, which means uh, protect the earth. So he wrote it for uh, a fundraising campaign for mm-hmm. this environmental organization. Yeah, so his uh, topics have gone from, you know, rice dumplings to sad love songs, and then now he's talking about the environment. Mm, just back in 2010. All right. So uh, as we said, a career that really ex- uh, spans quite a bit of time. Uh, and we're going to hear uh, that tune right now to take us into our final story. All right, and to round out the show, we are coming up on your fourth article for the month of October. Uh, actually, the fourth and fifth, because both of these are looking at the same uh, incident, uh, the 1930 Wuxia incident, 
uh, but taking two kind of different uh, approaches to it, asking two very different questions. So you, you, you this is, I, I think this is a first for your column, a two for a two part article. Mm, I think so. All right, so <laughs> uh, we believe it's a first. We believe so. Uh, and uh, the first one, we'll just stick with the first one that was published on October twenty third. Uh, titled The Long Road to Retaliation, uh, and looking at the incident itself, which occurred on October 27th, all the way back in 1930. And kind of the question that this article raises is, uh, what was the real cause for the incident? Because, of course, a lot of people were asking that when it was over, what caused this very bloody incident uh, and who is going to get the blame? So uh, kind of a controversial question at the time. But before we even get to that, uh, just to catch all of our listeners up who may not be uh, familiar with the Wuxia incident, tell us about the Wuxia incident. Um, so the Wuxia incident um, was a kind of Aboriginal uprising by mm-hmm. the uh, Sadic people um, against Jap- Japanese colonial rule. So um, in the morning of October 27, 1930, hundreds of Sadic warriors descended on uh, athletic meet at the local elementary school where there were just a bunch of Japanese people gathered and they just decided to kill every Japanese they could see and mm. they ended up killing um, – the official tally is 134 Japanese people and they accidentally killed two Han Chinese mm. dressed in Japanese clothing. Of course, the Japanese government retaliated and this turned into like a two-month campaign, which resulted in the death of uh, 600 tribespeople. Mm. So that's the incident itself. And just to give our listeners out there uh, a sense of the significance of this, I'm sure a lot of our listeners will know this already, but uh, for those who don't, this incident has been somewhat immortalized in recent years in what was at the time a very, very high-profile movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in the Cedric Bale, so side the Kobalai. That would have been back in just 2011, and uh, so that was probably one of the biggest movies movies of that year in Taiwan. Uh, and that's just to give you a sense of how this is looked on as one of the one of the key moments in the history of Japanese colonialism, treatment of Aboriginal people in Taiwan, uh, and a very important link in that historical chain and understanding. The development of uh, all of that, and uh, getting back to the the point of your article, uh, the incident itself, how it was touched off, is something of uh, a controversy in and of itself. Uh, how about you start by giving us the traditional take on what t- tipped it off? Well, the trigger, uh, the common trigger, was a conflict between. Uh one of the chief's sons and a Japanese police officer. So back then, there were a lot of... uh, The Japanese police officers were pretty much like the main contact between the Aboriginal areas and the Japanese colonial government. So there were way more Japanese police in the Aboriginal areas than in the Han Chinese areas. So um, they lived among the Aboriginals. And uh, so there was one incident where um, the chief's son, he was getting married and... He offered a drink to the Japanese officer, and the officer refused it, which was would be seen as very impolite in Aboriginal culture. So mm. the brawl started, and the Japanese officer got beat up. The tribe tried to apologize, and the apology wasn't accepted. So the common events say, like, the direct trigger was, like, rather than wait for official punishment, they would attack first mm. and kind of channel, like, these years of, like, 
mistreatment by the Japanese and then just strike first. Right. So kind of the the context of all of this is uh, at the time the colonial leadership uh, was under a lot of pressure from Japan that was asking, you know, how did you let this happen? How did, you know, there, it looks bad when a, a hugely violent event like this occurs. Uh, and so you kind of point out that they are really emphasizing the peculiar nature, the, uh, you know, this was just one event, one mishandling, one local official that kind of messed up, doesn't reflect broader colonial policy. Uh, and, and, and so that's perhaps why they framed the event the way they did. Yeah, so um, I look at this uh, report. Actually, Leo Ching, historian, looks at a Japanese report in his book, uh, Becoming Japanese. Mm. And uh, that report um, kind of touches on um, you know, like the mistreatment. And there were a lot of – well, but it looked at specific mistreatment, like the construction, like labor issues and construction projects and police misconduct – and so it looks at more like direct causes. Mm-hmm. And then it also talks about like the inherent violent nature of the aborigines and, you know, like citing their natural propensity for violence and lack of guilt consciousness. Just like, oh, that's the that's how they are. Mm. So they put a big emphasis on that. And then other kind of circumstantial causes and agitation of maybe like a couple rebellious savages and not a not a people that was like suffering as a whole under this colonial government so they tried to uh deflect criticism because that after the incident this was being debated like internationally and in the japanese diet and the colonial government yeah like you said they were under a lot of pressure like why did this happen like what are you guys doing kind of thing so, mm. so that was one take on mm. what happened uh but you present uh, another interpretation as well that i uh, probably emphasizes uh, a little bit more the, the 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 roots of the unrest and uh how many years of colonial rule kind of built up over time yeah um so then i look at a couple of uh accounts by by the descendants of these people so um they talk to elders and they kind of gather their take on what happened and it's for them it's uh just a long it was sooner or later about to happen it mm. was just um they knew they weren't gonna. They couldn't win against the Japanese, who were like far more superior in numbers and uh, military might. So they kind of kept lay low until something happened. Hmm. But uh, yeah, because yeah. the Japanese kind of they entered the area in 1906, and the first thing they did was take everyone's rifles away. And this is a hunting society, hmm. and they killed everybody who wouldn't comply. And um, through all these like violent means of control like the population had been halved by 1912 so um, there was a lot of killing and suffering in the early years and that kind of continued and um, it would still would take them like 20 years to actually retaliate and part of this um, one of the writers Takis Pawan he uh, explains that it was because um, the Japanese actually took the tribal elders on the tour of Japan to show them how powerful the country is. So they, whenever the young people wanted to retaliate, they would be like, no, don't do that. And you don't know what you're up yeah, against. Right, right. Until this finally this trigger broke out. So it's actually like a long 
period of suffering.、Hmm. It goes way deeper. So it, it was like the colonial policy is more than it was more than just a specific event or、mm-hmm. specific. Types of mistreatment. Yeah, and it's 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 interesting because when you look at those later accounts that you were talking about where, that were given by you know folks that were actually a part of the indigenous culture,、um, they really emphasize the kind of taboos and the cultural、uh, misunderstandings or the ways that the Japanese colonial rulers、uh, transgressed a lot of the things that. Uh, the local population felt to be sacrosanct, and it was interesting to me reading that because it it does really seem to mirror、uh, some of the tension that still exists between、uh, Aboriginal members of Taiwan's population and the central government.、Um, just in the sense that some of the biggest resentments that are held by Indigenous people are not things that city dwellers necessarily would think of immediately.、Uh, for example, I did a little bit of reporting. On the post Morricot reconstruction, and、uh, the central government always likes to, you know, put the numbers up for how many houses that they built for indigenous people to relocate to.、Um, but then, if you talk to、uh, the tribes that have been re- re- relocated, they say, "Well, you know, we weren't really consulted. We were taken away from our land, which is very important to us. You know, both in terms of、uh, how we maintain our livelihood, but also in terms of, you know, spiritually, we feel a connection to that land." And then these houses are just not the way that we would choose to live. You know, this is, does not reflect our own cultural values.、Uh, and so there's all these things that you would not think of if you weren't a part of this culture.、Uh, that you know, these、uh, today we see that kind of conflict, and then again, you know, leading up to the Wuxia incident, the Japanese colonial rulers were also running into. They likely didn't even know some of the transgressions that they were meeting out. Right, yeah. So、uh, Dakis Pawan he talks about this Gaia that、uh, is this kind of cultural, social, and moral code that each member was bound to. Because in such a isolated and like、uh, tight knit society, unlike cities today, you kind of everyone had their part in society. You kind of had to abide by certain like beliefs, and everybody had to like abide by that and. In order for this society to function and keep moving on, and then you have these people who come in who know nothing about it, and then just like step over all of that. So、mm. it's hard to imagine like having being being someone who grew up in cities. It's hard to imagine that some like how、uh, devastating that would be.、Mm. Yeah, even just the fact that they occupied the lands and they started logging and they started like building stuff and moving people around, like. It was probably like way more devastating to the Aboriginals than you might imagine, or just as like an act of colonialism. It was、mm. against their entire existence. All right, so that gives kind of an updated take on the causes of the Wuxia incident.、Uh, your final article for the month of October, your fifth article, looks at the aftermath and how、uh, the Japanese colonial regime responded to the incident itself. Uh, and the title of that article, which came out、uh, just yesterday on October 30th, "Fighting for the Oppressor,"、uh, is kind of interesting. It it, it kind of tells us where we're going to end up because,、uh, well, I'll just I'll just spill the beans. Basically, where this ends up is、uh, a lot of the children of the people that took part in the Wuxia incident.、Uh, they grew up to serve in the Japanese Imperial Army and basically fight in World War II.、Uh, so, how do we get from Wuxia incident? To fighting in World War Two, 
for the oppressor, basically. Yeah, that, that was really surprising because it, it was just less than a decade. And to get these people who resented the Japanese, whose fathers, brothers, like mothers were killed by the Japanese, and they, yeah, to get them to join the army and like pledge allegiance to the emperor and like fight for the empire of Japan, like, like how did that happen? And uh, so I re- again refer to Leo Ching's book, which uh, he details like uh, a lot of mm, like the Japanese policy, the shift in Japanese policy. So after this, there was a lot of uh, criticism of the Japanese government and how they handled the incident and how they ruled the aboriginals. So they decided to make them loyal to the imperial government instead of like oppressing them so it turned to like su- turn from suppression to assimilation and apparently it was really successful because you know you got all these people like um there were about four thousand aboriginals who fought for japan and um like i saw the records show that about 23 of them came from these survivors of this Cidic tribe that mm. was uh involved in the Wuxia incident. Yeah, so really, really incredible to think about what the policies must have been like. So uh, to, to win that kind of support in such a short time. So, I mean, it was, it was basically just uh, indoctrinating and educating. Yeah, it was a lot of enlightening, like enlightening. Quote, unquote. Quote, yeah. unquote, enlightening and educating. A lot of air yeah. quotes when we talk about colonialism. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, I think it was, uh, yeah, they taught them farming they made them like all learn japanese it was a lot of like uh education was a big part of it and then uh, also they stopped calling them savages they started calling them takasago zoku which uh, takasago is like an archaic japanese name for taiwan and zoku just means like ethnicity people mm. tribe so more of a neutral way of yeah it. yeah so they stop calling them savages or like, which will okay. make anybody like you more yeah so uh it was like a combination of all these methods yeah and adakis pawan writes that you know he was born after the incident after they were relocated but he's like he wrote that his father's generation had a high opinion towards japan and also mentioned like this japanese spirit a lot so, like, even within the Aboriginal account, we see this drastic shift in uh, attitude towards the Japanese. Mm. Yeah, and then the that community, Usha community, the remainders of this tribe, they were even um, named like an exemplary community and served an, an example for other communities. So that kind of so it's kind of like this kind of reward system, encouragement, and that that plays into part of it too. Hmm. So, yeah, just uh, another very, very interesting moment in uh, the era of Japanese colonialism that you look at here uh, in this article. Uh, so to kind of wrap this one up in a bow, I mean, the Wuxia incident is uh, one of the one of the really uh, most prominent moments in Taiwanese history. Uh, looking back on it today, uh, how, how do you think that it's thought of now? I mean, uh, what what would modern commentators think of it in terms of uh, its significance for overall Taiwan history? The main thing would be sir, like to serve an ex- as kind of an example of uh, colonial excesses? Colonial rule, like Japanese, like how brutal Japanese rule was and how these people were willing to risk their lives to fight a battle they couldn't win. 
like a lot of it would be like the circumstances that led up to it. So I think that's what people are most interested in is like. So they probably today that second part of the story where uh, a certain amount of indoctrination and a certain amount of buy-in into the uh, imperial project. That's not a part of the story that would be terribly emphasized today. Yeah, that's a part that's little like less discussed. Mm-hmm. Like I'm pretty much knew about the first part, like, mm-hmm. you know, like colonialism, like mistreatment, like uh, police misconduct, like that kind of stuff is uh, widely known and was depicted in the movie. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, the second part, yeah, it's more surprising, and, mm-hmm. but it's it's less talked about, partially because. After the nationalist takeover, mm-hmm. of course, you you wanted to keep that anti-Japanese spirit. So mm. you really wouldn't try to frame that as, oh, these people later decide to fight for the Japanese. And nobody in Taiwan was supposed to be fighting for the Japanese anyway. So that part of the story kind of got lost in time. But I think it's still like a crucial uh, part of the story and, mm. and something that should be mentioned. So that's why... I turned it into a two-part series. There we go. Yeah. That's how you. That's how you get a two-part series out of Taiwan in Time. Taiwan in Time once again is the name of the column series out by Taipei Times writer Han Cheng, uh, who joins us once a month to bring to light some of the lesser-known moments in Taiwan's history or some of the lesser-known sides of well-known stories, as we just heard right there. So, uh, Han Cheng, always good to have you on the program. Thanks for having me here again. Thanks for listening to another podcast edition of Taiwan Talk. Taiwan Talk, of course, broadcasts every Monday on ICRT FM 100, first at 8 a.m. and then again at 6 p.m. right after the top-of-the-hour newscasts. You can also find the extended podcast version, which is what you were just hearing right here, online at the ICRT website, on iTunes, uh, and most anywhere where you can find fine podcasts. I'll be throwing up a little blog post for this episode where you can find links to all of Han's articles for the month of October, just for your easy clicking perusal. Check that out on the ICRT blog, uh, or just search Taiwan Talk ICRT blog. It'll get you there one way or another. That is it for the show for today. For ICRT and Taiwan Talk, I'm Keith Manconi. See you next time. Thank you.